Tonight we begin a new mini-series about the tribulation and its implications. So to start, let's do a quick review of this seven-year period that precedes the second coming. If you want a more, if not extensive, but a much more extensive, but certainly than we'll do it in this cut tonight, uh, sessions three through five of Thursology are an overview uh, of the timeline and a lot of that is about the tribulation. And the foundational passage is Daniel 9 for the tribulation, where the prophet predicts 70 years, excuse me, 70 groups of seven years for the nation of Israel between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the very end of time. Here it is, Daniel 9.24. It's actually in your notes. Seventy years, and uh, excuse me, 70 weeks is what most translations say, but that I've put in there the actual Aramaic, Babylonian Aramaic term. This is not Hebrew. It's actually Babylonian Aramaic in this part of Daniel. Uh, It just simply means seven, which in the vernacular, since it's not specified that it's seven, whatever, donuts or seven miles, it would mean seven years. Seventy Sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city, so the people clearly would be Israel. The holy city would clearly be Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So this is clearly the the, uh, beginning to end from the the time, as we'll see, uh, I'll remind you of what we learned way back. So in the next two verses, Daniel describes the first 69 groups of seven years and exactly predicts the very day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We covered that stunning, I think, one of the two greatest timing prophecies in all of of history, biblical history, uh, and that was covered in uh, Thursology number 25. So if you haven't seen that one, it is absolutely staggering. Make sure and go back and see that. And then after the 69 sevens, Because Israel rejected their Messiah, right? They did the triumphal entry thing. They said, yeah, there he is. He's the blessed son of David, which is a messianic term. Uh, And then, of course, they all said, crucify him. So a prophetic gap occurred at the end of the 69th seven. Um, And uh, we're in the prophetic gap now between the end of the 69th seven and the beginning of the last seven years of history. And during this prophetic gap, since Israel wouldn't take the gospel to the world, God is using the church. And the church, of of course, is composed mostly of non-Jewish believers. And the plan for the church is to carry out the plan for God to save the world. But God hasn't forgotten Israel. We did an entire series on Israel. You can go back and see that. I think it might even be 10 or so in that part of the series. And now they're back in the promised land today. And we await the times of the Gentiles to come in, as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 11, and for Daniel's 70th seven, his last group of seven years, to begin. So the triumphal entry was the end of the 69th seven, and then a prophetic gap. Since Israel wouldn't be used, God used the Gentiles and is using them. But the 70th seven will absolutely come, just like the first 69 sevens perfectly prophesied what will happen, so will this. And so here's Daniel's description description of the last seven years. Look at verse 27. Again, it's in your notes tonight. And he, meaning the Antichrist, we know now, he will make a firm covenant, in other words, a peace treaty. He'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. 
this is the abomination of desolation, at the midpoint of the seven years. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate, meaning, meaning the Antichrist at the end of the seven years will be destroyed at Armageddon. So this is the seven-year tribulation. It's the last seven years of history before the second coming of Christ. And this very passage is the text that Jesus preaches from for the Olivet Discourse. You should be familiar with that if you've been following this series. And in his message, Jesus gives us much more detail about the tribulation than Daniel does, obviously, in this just one verse of chapter 9. Um, so let's read the vivid description. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And if you're new joining us, uh, we use the text a lot, so always have your Bible or your e-Bible. Um, is a good way to get good at going back and forth in the Bible. Um, let's read the description of the words of Jesus that outlines the kinds of things that will happen during the tribulation. And uh, I'm not going to rush through this because this is the kingpin passage of Jesus telling us about the tribulation. Then what we've had so far is the wars and rumors of wars and the birth pangs, right? And so then they will deliver you to tribulation. So here's where the tribulation begins. And will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and will deliver up one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise, and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. We're actually going to see where that verse is actually, in the, during the seven years, is actually specifically and explicitly uh, occurs uh, in Revelation. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation as was, as was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. So notice Jesus has stated his text. Text is exactly the text from Daniel that we have just been reading about. The abomination of desolation, the midpoint of the tribulation. So, look at verse 17. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to get the things out of his house, and let him who's in the field not turn back to his cloak, but woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Then there shall be great tribulation, as has not occurred in, from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. So there we have Jesus preaching about the tribulation, the seven years. He talks about the midpoint, the abomination of desolation. And after that, he says, it's the great tribulation, Jesus' terms. So this is not made up by eschatologists. Jesus' terms, the real thing. Um, and uh, tonight we begin a mini-series on the tribulation. But this series is going to deal with a question that I'm not sure I've ever heard taught or preached or written about. And here's the question. Why will there be a tribulation at all? As we're starting to delve into this, we're going to, we're going to start, I, like I say, I'm not sure I've ever I've seen lots, there's entire libraries filled with books that have been written about the tribulation, but why will there be a tribulation at all? And later we'll do a specific mini-series on the biblical support for each of the three major rapture views, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. That's not this series. But for now, I'd like us to focus on the tribulation itself, and specifically why the seven years will happen at all. 
And even more importantly, we'll look at the implications of what will happen if the church actually goes through the tribulation. But as we begin, just to make sure that everyone is tracking, let's do a quick review of the timing of the rapture views and how they relate to the seven-year tribulation. You actually have uh, in your notes, hopefully you've got them, and <coughs> I think it's easiest <coughs> if you put them out, obviously from week to week and fill in the blanks, uh, but you've got this here, and uh, I'm not going to go through all the detail of that, um, but it's just so we're all tracking about the tribulation. So here we are at the present, and as you can see, the squiggly line here, meaning we don't know, <laughs> that's what we just did six weeks on, we don't know when Jesus is coming from the church, regardless of what he, when he comes in here, we don't know uh, the time or the day. Uh, and in the pre-trib view, as you can see in the pre-trib rapture view, sometime before the peace treaty, you have the church get up, got caught up to, into heaven um, and uh, have the judgment seat of Christ and the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, some people believe that occurs immediately. Others think it happens near the end. But in any case, the proponents of the pre-trib view, and again, I'm not... This is not the series yet that I'm going to give the strengths and the weaknesses of each of the teachings, but just uh, outlining what the proponents of each of these say. Then the peace treaty begins, chapter 6, verse 1 of Revelation, if you want to see where it is. That's the covenant. That's Daniel's beginning of the 70th seven that he says, and there, he will sign, he, Antichrist, will sign a firm covenant with the many, the many who, Daniel's people, the Jews. So this is the peace treaty with Israel, and it begins the seven-year tribulation. And you may be familiar, then you get the, in, you know, six, seven, and eight, and nine, you get, the, you get the seal judgments, and then you get the trumpet judgments, seven of each. Uh, and then you come into the midpoint, and at the midpoint, Satan is thrown out of heaven by Michael and his archangels. And uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he then goes to persecute Israel and all of the followers of Jesus. He sets up the abomination of desolation, Daniel and Jesus teaching. And the, at the abomination of desolation, declares himself God, stops the daily sacrifice, as Daniel tells us, and now he's broken the peace treaty, and now he says, I'm God, and you will take my mark, and if you don't take my mark, then you will be beheaded, uh, and this incredible second half of the tribulation begins, the, what Jesus called the great tribulation, after the abomination of desolation, and the mid-trib uh, proponents, rapture proponents, believe the church is taken out, they believe that uh, there were Moses... Uh, uh, is, and the, uh, the prophets, uh, probably Moses, but the prophets there in uh, chapter 13 or 14 of Revelation, they believe that's a picture of the church being caught up when they are killed and resurrected and caught up into heaven. But that's a picture of the mid-trib. Um, and then you get the incredible 666 economic uh, world power, kill everyone who won't uh, worship and bow down. The seven bowl judgments, which are horrendous, we'll actually look at those in a, uh, a little bit about those in just a minute. Uh, and then in chapter 17, the harlot of Babylon is judged. Uh, did a whole thing on that, I think, during the anti, probably during the uh, anti-advent <laughs> series about the Antichrist, I think, is when I did that. Uh, where the harlot of Babylon, which is the apostate church, likely, is judged. And then in chapter 18, the city of Babylon is destroyed, whether that's actually the city of Babylon where they have found the ancient ruins and is rebuilt or whatever, we don't know for sure, or is, if, is that just some city that is the seat of power of Antichrist? Um, we don't know for sure, but then in chapter 19, of course, comes the incredible preparation uh, for Armageddon from 16 through 19, 
and Armageddon happens, and the post-trib rapture view believes that the second coming is a very complex second coming where the first thing that happens is the Jesus comes, the resurrection of the dead, the dead in Christ rise first, we who are alive and remain are caught up with him in the air, we join his mighty angels, and probably the, saint, the souls of the saints that have come, and they are joined with the, the saints who have gone, the, their spirits are now joined with their resurrection bodies, and come down and uh, war with Jesus to win the battle of Armageddon, and at the second coming, then the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the uh, into the uh, abyss, uh, into the lake of fire. Excuse me. And then the in the in Revelation 20, this is again just the straight Revelation timing. That's why I put the millennium there. In chapter 20, we find the thousand years uh, spoken of literally seven times, the perfect complete number of times in chapter 20. Uh, and then at the end of that, we get the whole. Uh, new heaven and new earth, the earth uh, and the universe melt with a fervent heat, and eternity begins after the great white throne judgment for the non-believers uh, occurs at the end there. So let's return to the question that's a clear implication from the post-trib rapture view. So during this time, I'm going to be asking the implications of if what if the church does go through the tribulation? If, if the post-trib uh, people are right. Even the Great Tribulation, with these horrendous bowl judgments, we'll hear about them uh, soon, uh, that are going on, that the church will live, live and die, of course, all through this uh, if the post-trib view. So we're, we're working as if the post-trib view is correct um, because um, I want to ask the question of, of if the post-tribbers are right, why would Christ want the church to go through the tribulation? Well, it turns out that there are quite a few reasons that God might want the church to go through the tribulation. So let's start looking at the question of why there will be a tribulation. Let's turn to the passage. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, as the great tribulation, the second half of the tribulation has begun. Um, and uh, this is, uh, describes what's going on after the midpoint, after the abomination of desolation. So notice uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Did the text, and I saw an angel, excuse me, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, so these are going to be the seven bowl judgments, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. It's worth noting, we'll come back to this when we really go through the tribulation um, text uh, in detail in a mini-series. Um, this is the first time where it is clear that the bowl judgments are the wrath of God. The seal judgments and the seven, the seven seal judgments and seven trumpet judgments, it's not clear whether that's God's wrath or that is Satan's wrath or it's some combination. Uh, there's a lot of discussion and, and controversy over that. But here it's very clear that this is the wrath of God, amazingly enough. And now look at chapter 16, verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1, we see the beginning of the bowl judgments here. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of wrath, the wrath of God, into the earth. So again, you see, this is God's wrath. Verse 2, And the first angel went and poured out his bowl onto the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon men who had the mark of the beast or who worshipped his image. Verse 3, here comes the second. And the second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Wow. And then, verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the river, 
and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now verse 8, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the uh, the sun, and it was given for it to scorch men with fire. And number ten, uh, excuse me, verse ten. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Verse twelve. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Now verse. Uh, now verse 16, verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. So you see after the seventh bowl judgment, the seventh angel pours that out, the Euphrates dries up and now the huge army from the east is able to come across the Euphrates and that's starting to prepare for, Arm, as we say in English now, Armageddon. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came from the temple of the throne saying, it is done. Let me correct myself. The sixth angel is the drying up of the Euphrates and the big, uh, huge army from the east. Uh, and now this is the seventh angel. It says, it is done. Verse 18, there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake it was and so mighty. Now verse 21, the last uh verse in the chapter, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So having read through the incredible bowl judgment, and how horrible it will be to be on the earth, look at how bizarre John's statement is, I don't know if you even noticed it, back in chapter 15, verse 1, look where we started. And I saw another sign in the heaven, great and marvelous. Listen to that. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. Look at this. Write it in. Here's a really strange statement. Here's your blanks. The wrath of God is great and marvelous, according to John. The wrath of God is great and marvelous. Now, how off the wall is that? We hear of the greatest pain and suffering in all of history, and it clearly comes directly from God, and we're supposed to interpret this as great and marvelous? In fact, look again at Jesus' words about how horrific this time will be. Back from Matthew 24, look, it's in your text uh, here in your notes. For there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So how bad is it going to get? Here's the severity of the Great Tribulation. Here's your blanks. Write it in. It's going to get so bad that not even true believers will be able to endure unless it's cut short. That's how bad it'll be. Even true believers won't be able to endure unless it's cut short. It appears that it's going to be so bad that if God didn't bring relief to the saints, he would have to renege on his promise that he'll never leave nor forsake his own. In other words, he'll take even his own children to the very brink of destruction. Now let me just for a second point out, some people are saying, aren't you presuming then the post-trib? 
This is not doesn't have to be the church. Because remember, even if the pre-tribbers are right, there are many, many getting saved. The 144,000 witnesses that preach the gospel. The witnesses that preach the gospel. The angel, as we'll see in a few minutes, that preaches the gospel around the world. So there will be people being saved. So there will be saved people who have to endure to the end and have it cut short, regardless of which rapture view it is. So this doesn't, this doesn't prove the post-trib rapture. We're assuming the post-trib rapture for the, just for the sake of what if the church does go through. But I just wanted to make clear that whoever those are who are saved at the end, it is so horrible on the earth. Church or no church, all of the believers in Jesus, the Jewish converts and the non-Jewish converts who would not take the mark of the beast, it's going to be so horrific that if this time wasn't shortened, even the elect would die and would not survive. That's how bad it's going to be. In other words, Jesus will take even his own children to the very brink of destruction. Now, how would a loving God do this? You realize the tribulation has huge implications about God. Why would God cause such universal suffering? Isn't this completely contrary to his very nature? There's a dramatic contrast between these passages and the scripture because the scripture pervasively teaches about the tenderness of God. I suspect you're familiar with the passage where Jesus tells his disciples that whoever has seen him, Jesus, has seen the Father. And so when you look at the passages about Jesus, it means that you're looking at the very nature of God himself. If you've seen Jesus, that's what the Father's like. And look at the tenderness of Jesus from Matthew 9. Here it is in your notes. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and seeing the people. Listen to what Jesus is like. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And what's amazing about Jesus is that he wasn't just tender toward the downcast and the marginalized. He was even compassionate toward people who were hard-hearted. Look at Jesus' description of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, religious leaders in Matthew 23. Again, it's here in your notes. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them will kill you and crucify. You will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the church. But now, notice, despite all that they've done. He looks at this group of wicked people who joined in persecuting the prophets and who would uh, soon murder him. That's who he's talking to. And yet, listen to his amazing compassion, even for them. Look at verse 37 in your text. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who sent, are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were unwilling. Look how bad they were. And yet, we hear the grief in God's voice, the desperation which he desires to save them and to bind their wounds and to help them in their distress. So now let's return to where we were. The God in the passages that we just read doesn't sound anything like the God of the tribulation passages. Notice, 
there's your blank, the dramatic contrast. The God of the gospel passages is a God of compassion and salvation. Let me say that again. The God of the gospel passages is a God of compassion and salvation, but the God of the tribulation uh, is a God of wrath. So, we're left with, here's your next blank, an apparent dilemma in the nature of God. Why would a God of compassion, here's your blank, why would a God of compassion pour out punishment on people? So we've come to one of the most challenging aspects of understanding God. The scripture pervasively describes him as compassionate, forgiving, and mighty to save. So on the one hand, so much love. And also, yet, there's still wrath. But before you look, we look at the biblical resolution of this apparent contradiction in God's nature, let me look again at humanity's response to God's wrath in the Great Tribulation. So you're in chapter 15, go back to chapter 16 of Revelation, and look at humanity's response to God's wrath during the bowl judgments. Verse 9. And they were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Jump down to verse 11. And they blasphemed God, the God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And verse 21 again, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and they blasphemed God. There it is again. They blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Wow. This gives us a big surprise in the tribulation. Write it in. As a whole, humanity's response to God's actions is blasphemy. So if you look at this whole interaction, God seems to be pushing humanity away from himself. That's what it looks like. They certainly seem to be moving away, but it's essential that we not miss a totally unexpected verse in this section. In fact, it comes as such a surprise that most of the modern translations put parentheses around this verse. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but many of the really strict translations in ASB, I think NIV, certainly RSV, uh, ES, English Standard Version, when you come to a statement that they know is there and it's in the text and no question about it, but it seems out of place, often they'll put a parenthesis or a clarifying parenthesis. And again, that's not in the original Greek text, but it is put there by the translators to make a point. So basically, this is how the translators hint at the fact that this verse is so out of place. Look with me at chapter 15, uh, 16 and verse 15. Behold, notice it's in parentheses in, in many translations. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. Listen to it again. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Notice, in the midst of all this blasphemy and unrepentance, there's blessing. There's a beatitude, right? Blessed are. This is a beatitude. There's a beatitude in the middle of the great tribulation. Can you imagine it? And what's the blessing? Write it in. Here's your blank. Here's the blessing. Some are awakened by the wrath. Some are awakened by the wrath and saved. So this helps us understand the apparent conflict 
in God's nature. Remember the question we're working on. If God is so tender and loving, why does he allow such incredible evil and pain and tribulation to happen? In fact, have you ever wondered, since God can do anything he wants, why won't he just end the world before the tribulation? If the very essence of his nature is love, and since he knows how terrible everything's going to get, why doesn't he just shut the whole thing down before it gets so evil and so terrible and wicked and horrific? Why doesn't he just shut it down and forget the tribulation? And in the end of history, before it gets so catastrophic, he basically would have prevented a whole bunch of pain. Why? And the answer comes in two key concepts. Here's your first key concept number one. God is such a saving God that he'll even use pain and pestilence and terror and suffering and plagues to bring about salvation. And key concept number two, there are some people who will only come to God in response to disaster. Listen to those again. God is such a saving God that he'll even use pain and pestilence and terror and suffering and plagues to bring about salvation. And there are some people who will only come to God in response to disaster. And now we're in a position to see how painful the tribulation will be. You ready? How painful it will be for God. We think it's going to be painful for the world. It's going to be infinitely more painful for this incredible, loving Savior who wants to save every last person. That's right. I believe the hardest thing God will ever do is pour out his wrath on all creation. He'll devastate it. But the reason he'll do this thing that seems so contrary to his very nature is because he loves people so much and cares, listen, cares more about saving them than he cares about anything else. In fact, look what will be going on simultaneously with God's wrath. Look at chapter 14. You're in chapter 16. Look at chapter 14 of Revelation. Look what will be going on simultaneously with God's wrath. Verse 14, uh, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and, you ready, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This is amazing. In the very midst of the tribulation, in the very midst of the great tribulation, God will still be sending the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the whole world. Here's the key concept. Write it in. During the great tribulation, the gospel will be spread, will be spread more clearly around the entire world than it has ever been in, at any time in history. An angel preaching globally in the skies, in the heavens, the perfect, flawless word of God of the gospel of salvation. Even the tribes that haven't had the word translated into their languages will hear the gospel from this angel. Whether the church is present during the tribulation or not, there will be people who come to Christ. And in fact, some biblical scholars believe that the greatest revival in history will occur during the tribulation. Suffice it to say, at the very time that God should be giving a wicked world exactly what it deserves, he'll still be earnestly trying to save people from destruction. Destruction's coming, he'll say, but listen to the gospel. Listen to my love. Listen to my salvation. 
I want to live with you forever. And in fact, it gets even better. Look at how this chapter, chapter 14, look how it begins. And I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. This is mind boggling to me. Look at how the mighty coming Christ is portrayed here. He's still the lamb. That's right. But wait a minute. Isn't he supposed to be the lion now? Didn't John find himself on his face when he saw the exalted Christ at the chapter one of Revelation? It's the great tribulation. The end is coming. Isn't it time for the mighty king to blow everyone away who hasn't fallen before him in worship already? This is utterly astounding. When Jesus finally comes at the very end of the tribulation, he'll be the lion, the judge, the conquering king. But, are you ready for this? It's one of the most astonishing truths about God. Here's your blanks. Write it in. Even during the great tribulation, Jesus will still be the lamb. Yes, slain from before the foundations of the world. Because at his very essence, my friends, God is Savior. Listen, God is Savior. He is Savior. And think about the stunning ramifications of this text. It's one of the most telling passages about the Son of God in all the Scripture. It's the perfect explanation of the greatest priority of Christ. Here's your blanks. Write it in. The great God and Savior will delay becoming the lion. Think about that. The great God and Savior will delay becoming the lion until the very last possible moment in history. The gospel is the greatest mystery in all of human experience. Here it is. These are deserved people who deserve the wrath that's coming on them. And guess what's happening? Angels are preaching the gospel, and guess who they see? They see the lamb slain. Astounding. So now let's turn to our application. And it'll actually be given in the form of a question. It's a question that comes up over and over again in history. It's a question that philosophers and theologians and scholars have wrestled with for thousands of years, at least as far back as Job. Application number one, here's your blanks. Why does God allow so much suffering in this world? Why does God allow so much suffering in this world? Over the next several weeks, we'll deal fairly extensively with this huge issue. But for tonight, We'll start answering by springboarding off of one of the key concepts. Remember, you wrote this in. God is a, such a saving God that he'll even use pain and pestilence and terror and suffering and plagues to bring about salvation. Springboarding off of that key concept, let's look at our question again. Why does God allow so much suffering in the world? Answer number one, here's your blanks. God can use the threat of pain to bring lost people to salvation. Turn with me to Jonah, the book of Jonah. It's easy to find, get to Matthew, the first, uh, the first of the uh, Gospels, and then uh, turn to the left about six or seven, and you'll, uh, very small books, Jonah. So it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Um, so if you get to the major prophets at Daniel, turn back to the right. It's between Obadiah and Micah. Uh, and you'll be familiar with this, but, but think about it in the context that we're talking about tonight. Jonah chapter 3. Now the 
word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, and this is after the big fish story, as you know, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days walk, meaning that's how long it took to walk across it. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I think that's nine words. How's that for a short sermon? He shows up, he says, thus says the Lord, listen up everybody, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with the sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and it said, this is an amazing revival, look at this, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from their wicked way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Verse 10, incredible, look at this. When God saw that their deeds and that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Think about it. Answer number one, God can use the threat of pain to bring lost people to salvation. This remarkable revival in Nineveh gives us a key concept. Here's your blank. While many people are saved through the beautiful message of God's love, some will only come to God through the threat of pain. Let me say that again. While many people are saved through the beautiful message of God's love, some will only come to God through the threat of pain. This is why it's so important for the teachers and preachers of the gospel to teach the whole word of God, not just the fun parts, not just the nice words of Jesus, but all the words of Jesus, not just the nice words of the word, but all of the word. If we fail to teach the consequences of straying from God's ways, some people who would be willing to respond to the announcements of God's judgment will remain lost through the irresponsibility of compromising preachers. And this is happening all over the land in this day. Only wanting to teach the ear tickling to the people and not teaching the whole word of God. Here's the answer number two. Why does God allow so much suffering in the world? Answer number two, here's your blank. God can use pain to return his children to himself. So now let's turn way back about a, oh, about 20% of the Bible to the judges, right? You get to the end of the Pentateuch at Deuteronomy, uh, and you, then you get into Joshua and Judges, the historical books start. And uh, let's look at chapter 10, Judges chapter 10, starting with verse 6. So they're in another cycle where they have turned to evil. Look at verse 6, chapter 10. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, gods of Sidon, gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. We can see now why. Why? 
because they're running from him. They're separating themselves. They're walking toward eternal separation from him. Of course it makes him angry because he loves them so much. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted the crushed sons uh, they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Ammonites. Boy, it took them a long time to get it, didn't it? Verse 9, And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and Benjamin, the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Verse 10, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, they were finally ready to say it. We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, and when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you from the time of your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. This is what they needed to repent, to say, It's me. It's not everybody else. It's me. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do so whatever to us seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So... They put away the foreign gods from them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Oh, he is so amazing. Think about this. This passage goes on to tell that the judge, Jephthah, who God raised up to deliver Israel, but notice that it was brought to God's people, uh, that God, he brought God's people back to him what did it? Pain and suffering. It was the pain and suffering. In fact, it, amazingly, it took 18 years of pain and suffering. And then when they repented, it was like the Lord said, oh, finally, I can relent. So here's the key concept from this section. Pain, here's your blank. Pain isn't only good for lost people. It can be good for God's people. And oh, I know, this is a painful precept, isn't it? Pain isn't only good for lost people, it can also be good for God's people. So God can use pain to return his straying sheep to himself. Why does God allow so much suffering in the world? Answer number three, here's your blank. Some people will only be saved through extreme pain. There's a direct analogy to this in medicine. Pain is incredibly useful in making us aware that something's wrong inside. Before pain comes, we may be totally unaware of a fatal abnormality in our body. Certain kinds of cancers are notorious for this. The paradox is that the best thing that could happen is for the cancer, you ready? For the cancer to cause pain. And some of the worst cancers are so terrible precisely because they don't become painful until late in their course. And because of this, the patient doesn't become aware of the cancer until it's too late to cure them. Amazing. Pain is a way to prevent a fatal thing. 
This is exactly what God will do to people of the earth during the tribulation. He'll take the world to its knees. He'll take it all the way to the edge. He'll take it to the precipice. He'll take it to the very brink of destruction. As Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse, God will take it all the way to the moment when it becomes so disastrous that if he didn't relent, not even his children would survive. But why would God do this? If he loves his children so much, why will he continue to allow such pain even among those who are totally committed to him? Why would a loving God take his people, who he loves, through such incredible hardship and to the very brink of disaster? Why doesn't he let up on the pressure long before the end of the tribulation, even long before the tribulation itself? And the answer? Because there will be some lost people living on the earth who will only be saved in the midst of extreme pain. Here's the key concept from this section. Write it in. Our God is such a saving God that not even the pain among his own children makes him forget those who are lost. Let me say that again. Our God is such a saving God that not even the pain among his own children makes him forget those who are lost. And this leads to application number two. Here's your blank. God is looking for people who are willing to suffer so that others will be saved. There's just no other way to say it into the application of tonight's understanding about why God brings suffering. One of the greatest examples of this is illustrated in Paul's life in Philippians chapter 1. Here he is writing from prison. Look at this. It's in your, it's in your notes. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. By the way, the Praetorian Guard are the, are the secret service. They report directly to Caesar. They're right around Caesar. And undoubtedly, they told Caesar the gospel that Paul was telling to them. This is how excited Paul is about the gospel, even though he's in prison. And notice... And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Wow. Would I be joyful that I'm in prison if that brought others to preach the gospel and speak the gospel more clearly and more boldly? What a perspective. Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel. God used his suffering for the purpose of salvation. And because God cares so much about lost people, he intends, ready? Listen, church. He intends to use our suffering to help bring about their salvation, others around us. This is the ultimate example of what Jesus meant when he said, those, those who would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. He really meant it when he said that, and this is what he meant. But why? Why does God want us to deny ourselves and take up a cross? Here's a key concept. Write it in. Many people will never believe the cross of Christ. Listen, many people will never believe the cross of Christ until they've seen a believer bear the cross. Let me say that again. Many people will never believe the cross of Christ until they've seen a believer bear the cross. You see, Christ isn't the only one who's asked to die for others. In fact, 
Every believer is called to the cross. And the reason God has given us this calling is because some people, some people will only be saved when they experience this kind of sacrificial love from a follower of Christ. That's when the light finally comes on. They begin to comprehend what Jesus did for them. They finally understand because they've seen someone willing to bear them as a burden to suffer for them, to die for them. But isn't this unfair? They don't deserve this. In fact, sometimes it's the very people who are inflicting the pain that God is intending to use us to save. What a ripoff is that? But how can God expect us to pay such a high price when we're just human? What if we're taken to the breaking point? What if we're crushed under the burden and the pain? Well, should we be surprised that this is the call on our lives when we're part of a movement whose primary symbol is a tool of execution? That's what the cross means, church. We dangle them around their necks as if they mean nothing. This is what the cross means to God, to his people, and to the world. God is asking us to lay our lives down for others, to bear the cross with him, so that others might be delivered, even though, even though, just like we didn't, they don't deserve the grace. In fact, this is exactly what the word teaches. Look, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, it's in your notes. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be from God, not from ourselves. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us. Look what this text teaches. Here's your blanks. Here's what it teaches. First, we carry in our bodies the dying of Jesus. By the way, this blows away the health and wealth gospel. That God's primary purpose for us is comfort and leisure and wealth and all of that is a, it's a joke. Second, here's your blank. We are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. And third, amazingly, the result of this is life. See that? Each time we're the dying of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the dying, the death, the life, the Death of the cross, the resurrection to new life. Listen, church, some of us have been handed an easy gospel, a safe gospel, a lazy gospel. Some of us have been told, come to Jesus, he does all the work, and you get all the benefits. Now, to be sure, there's one sense in which this is true. In fact, in one sense, it's understated, but not in the sense that it's usually meant. No, the real gospel is this. Here's your blanks. The real gospel is this. For every believer, there's a cross to be born. And this is exactly how God saves the world. So the real gospel, you ready? It's scary. But don't despair. 
Look what the word promises. When we bear our cross for his sake, look what the power of God does. Look from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And this amazing, listen to this banter going on in Paul's mind through the word of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Look at this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. For momentary light affliction, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Look at the promise. Write it in. I'll read it twice because there's four blanks. Ready? We are afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen again. We're afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Our God will never forsake us. He'll use us, and this will often mean that we are willing to pay a high price for Him. But we will not be destroyed. And He'll use our sacrifice to bring about the salvation of the world. So now we're in a position to begin to understand why God would take the world through the tribulation. And we're also in a position to understand why God might even be willing to have his church go through the tribulation as well. Now let me point out really quickly, I'm with you all for sure. I say this often, I signed up for the easy plan. So I'm, man, am I praying that the Lord is pre-trib because I sure want to be pre-trib. Don't you? But think about this. This is a clear reason why it is possible that the Lord may want the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, that has laid down our lives and ready and willing to die to go through the tribulation so that some who might otherwise take the mark of the beast and worship him and be separated from God forever might come as a part of the mighty revival going on in the tribulation. Because remember, God's number one priority always is saving the world. Not our comfort. That's not his priority. His priority is always saving the world and us being willing to be used to save his world. So for tonight, don't be distracted by the eschatology. Don't spend your effort trying to figure out whether the pre-trib or mid-trib or post-tribbers are right. For now, let's just allow it to soak in that sometimes, sometimes the hardships and the suffering and the trials that we go through in this age are the very things that God plans to use to help save people around us. And that brings us to our closing. This evening, we're left with a question. Are you willing to endure pain if that's what it takes for God to save others who don't know him? Are you willing to endure pain if that's what it takes for God to save others who don't know him? When you hang a cross around your neck, do you mean it? Are you willing to endure pain if that's what it takes for God to save others who don't know him? Listen to what the word says to us. Hang on, persevere, keep the faith, 
Don't weary of doing good. The day of deliverance, church, is at hand. Our redemption draweth nigh. That's exactly what Jesus told us. Our redemption draweth nigh. Our master has not forgotten us. Our master hasn't forsaken us. Our God is in control. He has a plan. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be defeated. Church, he cannot lose. Don't despair and don't waver. We belong to the king and the king will win and the king is coming soon. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive me for how much of my life <laughs> I have spent trying to, uh, to stay away from the suffering and the pain. Lord, often forgetting that you asked us to bear a cross with you because that is how you save your world. Lord, I have to say, that my top priority in life has not always been your top priority because what we have seen tonight is your top priority is saving people. And if you have to take the world to the very brink of destruction, and even if you have your children involved in all of that horrendous thing, the reason why you're doing that is you are more concerned about saving people than you're concerned about anything else. And so, Lord, I would just say tonight, by your sanctifying Holy Spirit, cleansing us and empowering us and making us pure and making us truly yours, Lord, that by that, by that power and purity, you will make it so that we will care more about the salvation of others than we care even about ourselves. Lord, we can't do that. That's not just follow this rule and don't do that and do this, Lord. That takes an utter complete transformation. And so we pray, Lord, tonight, that your Holy Spirit will burn and cleanse and empower so that we become the kind of people who when we see the cross or wear the cross or talk about the cross, say, Lord, only by your grace and your power will I ever be able to do it. But Lord, I'm willing to bear your cross. Do so in us, Lord. We love you. Amen.